the global right wing's bizarre obsession with pedophilia. Believe it or not, there is method in their madness. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Certainly, the 2020 campaign season was unlike any other. The most obvious and legitimate was the truly unique challenges of the COVID pandemic. But among the many unusual factors was the blatantly absurd insistence by right-wing Trumpists that Democrats were all about pedophilia, child sex trafficking. The weirdest thing about it was that so many actually fell for it. Was this sheer lunacy that popped up from a few people at the fringe of the fringe, or something even more sinister, a well-thought-out, quite intentional mechanism to be used to make Trump win. Pedophilia? Child sexual abuse? How truly insane is that? That the Democratic Party up and down the national ticket were secretly about foisting this satanic ritual abuse on American children. Secret tunnels where kids were tortured. Pizza joints where they're tortured. Of all the many truly bizarre twists and turns of the far right, this insane allegation worked as intended. Yes, it was intentional. And it's a well-thought-out tactic the far right has latched onto around the world. And they may be achieving their goals. In his new article titled The Global Right Wing's Bizarre Obsession with Pedophilia, John Pfeffer, Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, says, yes, child molestation is a very real problem. But the far right is far more interested in demonizing women, homosexuals, and the transgender community. And Pfeffer says Hungary's famous, infamous, I should say, authoritarian leader Viktor Orban loves a good enemy immigrants, for example, but now he may have gone too far with his attack on an unlikely and universally unliked group of people, pedophiles. So it's not just in America. This line of attack may well be the tip of the spear of the worldwide culture war, which has been shown to connect with rural conservatives and boost the fortunes of the far right more than actual policy issues. It's not really about protecting the kids. It's about fears of a changing social order. John Pfeffer, thanks for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having me back on the show. John Pfeffer's been a regular guest on Keeping Democracy Alive. His latest play is Clown Time. His latest book is The Pandemic Pivot. And his latest novel, Songlands. Just a little prolific. I don't know how you get to do all that. <laughs> now, listeners, again, thanks for being with us. Listeners have heard me tell that many years ago, my friend, a Unitarian minister, said, Bert, there's only two things that motivate people in politics, fear and reassurance. So the political interest that can effectively manipulate those factors has a powerful narrative going. How does this global right wing's bizarre obsession with pedophilia fit in with that uh, uh, assurance from uh, my old friend, that definition? 
Well, certainly it stokes fears. Uh, and this is, you know, it's of course nothing new for uh, the global right wing. They've, they've been focusing uh, prior to the pandemic on immigrants as the great threat to uh, social cohesion, uh, to the natural order. But of course, you know, during the pandemic, there was tremendous lockdown across the country, border closures, uh, restrictions on uh, on immigration of all varieties. And so immigrants largely left the picture as, as it uh, pertained to kind of politics. And so the global right wing started to, well, look for other targets to stoke fear uh, among the population. And, uh, and there have been a variety of different top uh, focuses, uh, and one of which, of course, would be um, uh, gay marriage. Uh, another would be uh, homosexuality more generally. Yeah. Uh, a third would be uh, kind of gender fluidity. Um, but uh, pedophilia has and it kind of brings together all of those issues, at least in the imagination of the global right wing. Uh, and as you said in your introduction, it, it, it both animates the fringe uh, when we're talking about QAnon, but it also animates some very mainstream, otherwise kind of just traditional conservatives like Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, or politicians like Putin in Russia or Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, and of course, here in the United States, uh, some leading lights in the Republican Party. Mm. Pedophilia has emerged as kind of a, a an ideal kind of um, uh uh, fear factor, if you will, in politics, in part because, uh, as as I've said, this is a real, uh, it is a, a, a problem. Child molestation is a problem. Of There's course. no question about it. But uh, the the pedophilia that they're talking about is almost wholly imaginary. And I can talk about what I mean by that if you're interested. Well, yeah, please do. What do you mean wholly imaginary? And, I, I, you know, it, the reasons for using it seem to be, you know, pretty clear because every, who could be for pedophilia? It's something that right. really connects with everybody. Well, tell right. us about uh, what, what you were just saying. Sure. Well, let's start with QAnon. I mean, QAnon is uh, a kind of uh, conspiracy theory that emerged during the Trump years and and uh, kind of coalesced around this notion that Donald Trump was a savior figure, that he was going to save not only the United States, but the world. Uh, but of course, they had to kind of figure out, well, what was he saving the world and the United States from? And they kind of, and they being a kind of an amorphous group of people, I mean, this is, this is kind of crowdsourced uh, conspiracy theory. Um, uh, they imagined that there was a kind of cabal, a, a global network of um, very powerful people, mostly liberal, mostly globalist in orientation, who were in fact worshippers of Satan. And not only were they Satan worshippers, but they were involved in uh, the trafficking of children across borders for the purposes of sexual predation, but also for the harvesting of their blood. Uh, I know that sounds weird, but of course, this is a fantasy. And uh, that the harvesting of that blood, that blood was necessary in some ways for their uh, acquisition of global power, the continuation of global power. Uh, in some ways, this is just a kind of a, a, a Dracula um, myth that has been updated for, you know, for modern sensibilities. Um, in other ways, it, it dates back to a much older set of, uh, of yes. fantasies. And I, I connect it to what's known as the blood libel, which is this notion that um, Jews from 
the time immemorial also uh, were kind of uh, trafficking in children, using them uh, for bizarre satanic rituals and harvesting their blood for use in those rituals and in such things as, as making matzah. Right. Um, and so obviously also a, a complete fantasy, uh, but one that has endured for nearly a thousand years since its emergence in the 11th century in uh, England. Having to have some sort of other, some sort of enemy to be feared, something that is foreign to, you know, the the uh, family values of whatever country it is, uh, is is very convenient. Immigrants, and certainly what you were talking about, the blood libel, the allegation about uh, Jews needing uh, blood of Christian children to make matzah. Which, you know, that brings back memories of uh, Germany in the 1930s and 40s, no question about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And it's, it's not uh, by chance. These things work. I mean, everybody's against uh, fear of pedophiles works because it's so loathsome and so vile. The panic machine does not usually spring organically from the bottom up. What are the, what you call the well-financed global battering rams of Christian fundamentalists? Mm -hmm. So there are a number of uh, NGOs that have emerged, uh, effectively right-wing NGOs, that, are, uh, that have focused for the most part on a conservative social agenda. Um, and that social agenda has been to overturn um, gay marriage uh, statutes uh, throughout the world um, and or to uh, impose um, language uh, defining marriage is that only between uh, a man and a woman in constitutions and in um, legal documents throughout the world. Um, so these organizations have primarily focused on the social agenda. There's also, a, a, um, in addition to a focus on homosexuality, there's also a focus on very traditional and very conservative understanding of gender, um, both in terms of the roles of women in society, but also the, the concept of gender fluidity and um, a, a discomfort with, um, or they have demonstrated a discomfort with the notion that um, that uh, gender is not just a, a, a bipolar contrast between male and female. Um, so that has been going on for quite some time. Uh, certainly, um, We've seen organizations like Citizen Go, which is a petition organization in Europe that has gone global. It's patterned after moveon.org here in the United States, uh, has been very successful in mobilizing conservative voters uh, and uh, interest groups throughout Europe. Um, we have a number of uh, organizations that are defined as pro-family, uh, and they have uh, interestingly, moved on this question of pedophilia, um, they weren't really kind of interested in the issue previously, but either because of lobbying within the organization or this recognition that, hey, this is, this is the language of the moment, we really have to latch onto it, they've begun to, um, to tailor their messages accordingly. And one way of doing that is by essentially saying that uh, homosexuality fuels homosexuality is um, connected to pedophilia uh, in some intrinsic uh, in some intrinsic way and that has been a, a message that has percolated up uh, through these organizations within the United States and in their global messaging and there is a lot of money behind it yeah. um, this is this is these are the effectively the global arms of 
the American um, evangelical movement, conservative evangelical movement, uh, which has a lot of money and which has, you know, has obviously spent it here in the United States. But there's growth potential overseas because often they will enter countries, especially in Africa, where their money goes a long way mm -hmm. in terms of uh, messaging, in terms of uh, influencing politicians. So, you know, it's kind of a, a modern uh, missionary movement, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that's been going on for a long time. And you know, the whole missionary thing, we are better than you and, and your values are wrong. And to apply this, it, it's it's creative, but they have some history that it works. They know that it works. And as you say, there is a right-wing movement around the world whose tactics seem to be universally applied. It almost doesn't matter what country. It, it, if their determination, maybe it's their determination to replace democracy with religious nationalism. And we've seen that starting here. Uh, and the, the, so in doing so, the normal political issues, actual issues that, you know, members of Congress and the president can do something about, they take a backseat to a culture war because that connects. And according to Catherine Stewart, author of The Power Worshippers, the moneyed interest behind the manipulation of populism researched long ago to see what issues would most effectively connect and motivate the masses. And they tried many different things, but back well, a long time ago, they landed on abortion as the one that worked best. That's why they chose it, not because they were so concerned about abortion, but because that worked best at, at uh, wedging open the culture war. So I wonder what actual stances of the Democrats in the 2020s has perhaps left them open to culture-based attacks by the right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is an interesting question. And uh, I mean, one argument is that um, we've seen an explosion of, well, on the one hand, identity-based politics, uh, and on the other, kind of rights-based politics. And in both cases, the, the right wing has seized on that in its, in its culture wars. In the first case, identity politics, well, of course, you know, throughout the 1960s, 1970s, we saw the rise of social movements that um, were built around, but not exclusively uh, composed of uh, understanding of identity, understanding of African-American identity, uh, identity of women, uh, identity of uh, gay lesbians, etc. The right wing, of course, it took them a little while, but eventually uh, they did respond with this new kind of identity, white nationalism, mm -hmm. uh, a white pride. Now, of course, that was always part of the neo-Nazi movement, but what became an innovation, if you will, of the Trump era is the um, absorption of those messages into the conservative mainstream, into the, the rhetoric of, of you know, uh, news anchors, if you can call them that, like mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson. Um, so there you have kind of the um, the, the genesis, if you will, of, of that stream. Uh, and on the, on the human rights or civil rights side of things, um, the use of rights language has also been uh, kind of co-opted by the far right. So, of course, in the abortion debate, it was the rights of the fetus uh, as compared to the rights of, of mothers. Um, and uh, in, in other spheres, it was the rights of gun owners. And suddenly you had that, that same kind of 
legalistic uh, definition of, uh, of discourse co-opted by the far right in its culture wars. And you could, you could argue that in some sense the Democrats were ill-equipped mm-hmm. to address either of those because they were, those concerns were being expressed in language that was in some sense similar to you know the the core some of the core issues that Democrats have been running on, especially on on the cultural side of things. I think one additional thing I'd say is that you know we have gone from what were culture wars in the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s to cult wars. In other words, we're talking about uh, a, an actual cult that has seized control of the Republican Party. So uh, if we look at um, either the uh, the sympathy that some members of Congress, uh, especially new members of Congress, have for QAnon, which you know is actually quite remarkable that mm. anybody in Congress would would come anywhere near something so outrageous as QAnon. I mean, that's obviously one indication of kind of how cult-like thinking has seized at least some members of the Republican Party, but more. Uh, significantly, the whole kind of personality cult around Donald Trump and the belief that you know anything he says is is worthy of effectively you know uh, personality worship. I mean that too is 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 cult like. So you know this is this is something the Democrats actually can't compete on. You know because there is nothing comparable in the Democratic vocabulary. There's nothing comparable in the in how the Democratic Party organizes itself. Mm. Um, I mean I'm not saying that the Democratic Party hasn't embraced some outlandish things in the past, but nothing on the order of the cult-like worship of either a figure like Donald Trump or a set of ideas like QAnon. And cults and uh, cults of personality, uh, you know, they've been around for a long, long time, and, and they do work. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we are uh, talking about keeping democracy alive. Boy, it does have some threats. Our guest today is uh, John Pfeffer, Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. We're talking about his article called The Global Right Wing's Bizarre Obsession with Pedophilia. And, of course, we mentioned former President Donald Trump. He's scheduled to speak at a rally in Cullman, Alabama, on August 21st. And he's going to deliver remarks on, quote, faith, freedom, and America. Mm-hmm. Real controversial. Many factors lend themselves to being fit into this frame, such as confusion about freedom and the pandemic, Second Amendment fanatics, whipped up fear of Black Lives Matter, insisting they are a hate group. It's, it strikes me as kind of Orwellian or even Hitlerian. Say of your opponent what is true about yourself, making average Americans, uh, making average Americans fear average Democrats. It's a unique wedge. You know, average Americans fear other average Americans. It's quite a wedge. Owning the reassuring normal is not new to radical right-wing movements in history. Owning the reassuring normal. Can you cite some examples in history, please? Uh, yeah, well, um, I mean, if we're looking at, uh, you know, the the absorption of the bizarre and of the... Of, the previously abnormal into normal discourse. Well, of course, as you mentioned, Nazi Germany is is one example of that, and the demonization of an entire, not just Jews, but uh, a wide variety of minorities in German society, including yeah. Roma and homosexuals and so yes. forth. 
Um, we saw that in Rwanda uh, with the demonization of uh, of you know uh, of one minority by uh, by another. Um, we've seen it in um, a variety of kind of state conflicts in which the other is portrayed as not simply an opponent but as the epitome of evil. And I mean, this is what connects us to the pedophilia question. Yes. I mean, let's look at the, the breakdown of order in Yugoslavia. Um, you know, effectively, the Serbian state of Slobodan Milosevic um, and to, to a certain extent, the, the Croatian state of Franjo Tuđman, they both kind of understood each other's kind of ethnic group as, as not just a, a kind of a, a challenge or as a, a, a constituency that was, say, quote-unquote, blocking progress, but they saw it as really the epitome of evil. And, and because it was the epitome of evil, it justified the eradication of that uh, group by any means necessary, even up to the point of war crimes. And I think we see the same kind of principle at work here with pedophilia. I mean, if your opponent, I mean, okay, you might not like Democrats because they're liberal. Right. You might not like Democrats because they're globalists. You might not even like them because you think they are socialists or communists. But to be pedophiles goes beyond the pale for most people because a pedophile is, is preying on the weakest and most vulnerable people in society. And uh, it's kind of universally seen as despicable. If you can somehow uh, brand your opponent as beyond the pale, as demonic, then you know it justifies you know any means necessary to eradicate them, mm. including in the U.S. context, insurrection and the overthrow of the existing government. Because look, we are, they are battling evil. I mean, it brings me back to you know like the Left Behind series, which was a very popular series of novels written during um, the Reagan years, and which were and and beyond that, of course, uh, which uh, understood you know, liberals as, as basically being the allies of the Antichrist. Uh, liberals, globalists, the UN, all of them, uh, effectively evil. They were the faces of evil. And, you know, to the extent that people read those books, and they were on the bestseller list, they were very popular, to the extent they read them and believed them, it, it created a worldview in which anything they did to battle the, the allies of the Antichrist was justifiable. And I think that puts us in a very, very uh, fragile and, um, and, and really scary situation here in the United States. And of course, people want to be reassured. They, they, you know, we feel like I'm normal. I want normalcy. I want, you know, peace and tranquility and prosperity. And when those things are pictured as, you know, actual threats, that, that does, it you can't, you know, Democrats and Republicans used to be, you know, within the same basic frame that we're, we've been opponents, but we're all Americans. And, and you know, the we were not <laughs> evildoers, but this has changed very much. And, of course, Trump is hardly the only example of authoritarian leaders weaponizing fear of the mysterious other calling immigrants from Central America rapists and murderers that he did, as he did when he kicked off his campaign in 2015, was, was clearly not merely off-the-cuff remarks. Many people who don't know that they already know homosexuals can be made fairly easily to fear and hate the other. Mm -hmm. One of the world's most notable... Well, go ahead. You were going to say something. 
No, I was just going to say that, you know, often this represents a kind of anxiety that the people have about their own identity. Um, And, you know, we have any number of examples of of rabbit homophobes who then turned out to be, well, gay in the closet. Um, And and their, their projection of homophobia was a reflection of their own anxiety over their own sexuality. And uh, one could, one is tempted to, to make the same argument when it comes to pedophilia, yes. um, not, not across the board, of course, but certainly in terms of a number of key conservatives that have emerged as kind of uh, um, uh, standing accused of pedophilia or child molestation. Uh, this was the case in Hungary uh, with Viktor Orban's ruling Fidesz party. It's it's no accident that the that the party comes out with this bill uh, demonizing uh, not just pedophilia but homosexuality as well. At the same time that the party is embroiled in a number of scandals involving its own leading people, including an ambassador to Peru, uh, who were found with child pornography or were arrested for, in one case, taking photographs of, of naked children on the beach uh, in, in their uh, changing rooms. So, I mean, <laughs> this, is a, this is a major problem that, that the Hungarian government had to deal with, but instead of, like, cleaning house or addressing the charges of, of child molestation that have uh, roiled the Hungarian Catholic Church over the years, they instead have decided to kind of uh, blame another group of people, those other people, the, the mm-hmm. homosexuals, for this problem in society. See the same thing here in the United States. Matt Getz of Florida, yes. I mean, you know, he's one of the leading lights of of, uh, of the aggressive far-right Republican Party, and he is currently under investigation, not just for uh, sex with an underage minor, but actually for trafficking minors uh, across borders and his kind of relationship with uh, one, you know, particularly uh, egregious individual. Um, But uh, he's not alone. I mean, we've had a number of scandals involving uh, U.S. politicians like Roy Moore, who Mm -hmm. ran for Congress and, of course, suffered any number of allegations of of child molestation. Um, We had the the Dennis Hastert, who was uh, kind of toppled uh, because of his associations with uh, child molestation. And we've had leading members of the Republican Party actually um, looking the other way when their friends or their donors have also been accused of child molestation. Um, and that that is something that, yeah, that, that, that really makes you wonder, well, why are they protesting so much yes. about child child molestation when there is so much child molestation taking place within their own ranks. So perhaps, you know, uh, talking about an imaginary set of uh, pedophiles, an imaginary child molestation problem is particularly convenient uh, way of dealing with an actual pedophilia problem within the party. Yeah, that is uh, uh, amazing. As you know, obviously the famous Shakespeare quote, Methinks thou doth protest too much, you know. Exactly. I've I've seen people, you know, during the uh, the recent campaign, the virulence, the loud rage, you know, and and the phrase did enter my mind. And there are embarrassing cases, and you know, so often over the past ten, fifteen years or so, when we hear about you know some elected official and child abuse, you can almost guarantee it's going to be Republican, and yeah. <laughs> you know Joseph Goebbels. Uh, who was the uh, propaganda expert for his, his boss, Hitler, said something like, say of 
the other side, what is true about yourself. Yes. That seems to be the case here. Um, and what about this obsession, this Pizzagate thing? This yeah. is really fascinating to me. How many people believed it and, and what the whole Pizzagate thing was about. And, you know, it, it just, uh, I, you know, I've heard that, uh, you know, there's the story was this establishment, the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, which I hear has good pizza and is welcoming. <laughs> it's welcoming of gay customers. Mem mm -hmm. Members of the alt right urged Clinton's prosecution over the emails, and they spread the theory. And in fact, a man from North Carolina believed the theory, traveled to the pizza place, fired a rifle inside the restaurant, and the restaurant owner and staff also received death threats from conspiracy theorists. Uh, mm -hmm. And they, Trump people latched on eagerly to this amazing story, insisting it was true, publicly expressing the belief that this is what Democrats were all about. I was yeah. amazed at how pervasive the belief was. What do you make of all that? Well, I mean, first of all, it boils down to, and this may sound absurd, but it boils down to the fact that Comet Pizza is CP, Comet Pizza. Child pornography is CP, <laughs> child, child pornography. Now, that might seem like ridiculous, but I think you have to understand, and you see this a lot in in uh, the kind of QAnon postings uh, that get a lot of traction within the belief believer community. There is a kind of... a uh, almost a numeral numerology um, or a biblical mm -hmm. exegesis approach to uh, to the world. I mean, uh, anyone who has you know read like the late great planet Earth or any of these kind of tracts of uh, of Christian um, end uh, end is nigh right. yeah, end times writings will realize that that a certain group of people, especially within the uh, religious right, look at the Bible as a kind of coded message uh, to believers. There's the kind of explicit writing that one follows, but then there's also for the for the people who are really in the know, there are coded messages. Yeah. And those messages might be numerological, if you know, like John 3, 14, 3, 14 is significant. Not actually what the words are, but the numbers 314. Um, and I mean, this is, I, I should, I should hasten to add that this is not something peculiar to um, American evangelicals. Isaac Newton, who was a great scientist, was also obsessed with kind of understanding the numerological um, basis of, of biblical writing. So it's something that, uh, that even, you know, very, very smart people become obsessed with. And if you look at kind of how QAnon reads things, like uh, it, it's trying to figure out, for instance, what is the real significance behind Trump's sayings? Uh, you know, they'll count up the number of words that oh, are in, right. uh -huh. in. They'll they'll look at the the number of flags that are American flags that are arrayed around the podium when he gives a speech. So they are looking for the signs and the portents. And the the Comet Pizza thing was another example of the signs and the portents. And, you know, your average person is going to think it's just a pizzeria. The average person thinks it's uh. just a Democratic Party, and maybe John Podesta goes there and has pizza every so often. But you would be a fool to believe that because there is hidden significance. And hidden, I mean, it's 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 as if they took the um, 
the literal or the figurative and then assumed it to be literal. In other words, there's hidden meaning in these messages. There must be something hidden in Comet Pizza itself. There must be a basement there in which these nefarious activities are taking place. If only someone would go there and open it up and they would uncover the secrets that are hidden there. So it's a very, uh, it, it's, it might sound insane on the, on the face of it, yes. but it actually has, has a real long lineage of uh, biblical interpretation that's, that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, I wonder if it's, it seems to be a part of, I mean, human nature is, is huge, it's, it's vast, but there's a part of it that wants to be like, ah, I know the secret, you don't know the secret, I know the <clears throat> secret. And there's sort of a, a longing for that, I think, in, in a lot of people, uh, especially in, in difficult, challenging times. And again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort. We need your help. Uh, we're speaking with John Pfeffer, who is Director of Foreign Policy and Focus on the global right wing's bizarre obsession with pedophilia. And, and back to the, to the Democratic Party, the corporate wing of the party. Uh, they've, they've had some victories, uh, and they've resisted the embrace of the social issues demanded by the more traditional liberal wing, like equal marriage rights. They had to be dragged kicking and screaming into supporting gay marriage, like ending discrimination against trans people. They feared alienating middle America. I wonder in what ways does this effectiveness of the religious nationalists on things like allegation of pedophilia indicate that the fears of the socially conservative top DNC leadership may have been well-grounded? Well, it, there certainly is. Look, I mean, there certainly is a, a core number of Americans who believe in outrageous things um, <laughs> that in some sense go beyond any normal politics. I mean, a QAnon believer is not engaged in, in ordinary politics. They're not interested in, in pork barrel legislation. They're not interested in, right. in compromise of any sort. They are interested in something that is truly extra political. And there's no way that, that frankly, the Democrats or traditional Republicans are going to appeal to them. They're just not, they're not um, susceptible to the, that kind of messaging. So I would argue that you know, the, the bizarre obsession with, with pedophilia that you find within far-right um, parties and within far-right political circles, it's really, it, it's, it, it is um, directed, you know, obviously directly at a group of people who don't care about kind of ordinary politics, but it has the potential, and here's the danger, it has the potential to reach beyond that simply because they're talking about a group of, well, first of all, they're talking about a, what is a problem, pedophilia is a problem, and everybody knows it is a problem, and two, um, they're talking about uh, something that, um, that a lot of people in society have great anxiety over. I mean, look, in this country, you know, uh, it is extremely difficult to get uh, good child care. I mean, this is not Europe. This is not Scandinavia, where, you know, parents are comfortable having children, mm. putting their children in, in daycare and, you know, returning to work or, or uh, getting, you know, actually very good child leave policies so they can stay home before then putting their children into child uh, daycare. Here in this country, we have terrible daycare. And I think we have a great deal of anxiety over that. And that, for instance, in, in the 
uh, 1980s, there was the, the satanic witch craze, you know, that, that there were satanic cults that were taking place in childcare centers all around the country, um, which was, you know, uh, uh, this was a bizarre thing that, that people actually believed in. And there went number of cases went to court, yes. number of people went to jail, yes. and there was actually never any any proof that any of this had happened. And you might think, my God, you know, this is like the Salem witch trials yes. all over again. Yeah. How could this have happened in a modern country? And I would argue it happened in a modern country because we have such anxiety over childcare. We have anxiety about putting our children in childcare. We have anxiety about the quality of that healthcare. And this is how it manifests itself. So um, that, that I think is, is, you know, the the real challenge that, well, for instance, the Democratic Party in particular has to address these root causes. I mean, it can, you know, we can pass a legislation mm -hmm. against pedophilia. I mean, it can mandate investigations into the Catholic Church. It can do a number of things. But ultimately, I think it has to address our anxieties about the welfare of our children and how uh, how they're taken care of outside the family, as well as, frankly, inside the family as well. Oh, that's interesting. People, you know, the people on the right talk about, uh, you know, it's the family that uh, it's the mother and father that should be in charge of all this stuff. And you can't have the schools have any. I mean, that's probably one reason they don't want to teach the so-called critical race theory, which is actually just history. They don't want to do that because it interrupts their belief. And I do wonder if the conservative Democrats, maybe they were right in saying, you know, let's not talk about gay rights. Let's not talk about, you know, uh, uh, trans rights and things like that, because it does alienate people uh, in the middle. So maybe they, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's, you know, people do care about, uh, about liberties, including, you know, gay rights, so-called gay, they're really just rights for everybody. But, mm -hmm. uh, but addressing the going, even go, stepping into the culture war, I think a lot of people, uh, more conservative Democrats would have preferred that we just stay the heck out of the culture war thing. But I wonder what would have happened had we done so. Well, I don't think it was possible. I mean, because it's not as if the Democratic Party kind of made a decision, aha, this is this is how we're going to win votes, or this is for for ideological or moral reasons we're going to pursue this. They were pushed to do so by social movements, and those social movements were powerful. And especially on the on the question of uh, gay rights, gay marriage, um, these became mainstream concerns. And I'm reminded that, you know, the Supreme Court made you know a couple of pivotal decisions and one one of the cases that was pivotal was was one that Sandra Day O'Connor became uh, she was the, the deciding vote and Sandra Day O'Connor was quite conservative and you know a darling of of well, frankly the the religious republicans uh, but and this is this is really important she uh, she had a number of supreme court clerks who were gay, and they changed her mind. In other words, her mm. proximity to uh, to out uh, and proud gay people in America revealed to her that they were not the devil. And she even presided over uh, the marriage of one of them. And, and, uh, this before some uh, marriage became legal, and and I think that is. That's the essential point here, that it wasn't that political forces made a decision to wade in on cultural issues. It, that these cultural issues came into their lives, you know, uh, in, in unavoidable ways. And, and they have been transforming America outside of politics before any of the parties decided to, to make them cultural issues per se. 
and certainly, you know, people like the familiar. And this, you know, let's face it, it's unfamiliar, especially to the people in America who live in the less densely populated areas. Uh, mm-hmm. They, they don't. They, I'm sure they know gay people, just they don't know they know gay people. But so yeah. they, they fear what, what they don't know. And I can imagine in Central Europe as well as Middle America, cosmopolitan liberalism confuses people and can be made to frighten socially conservative voters, just cosmopolitan yeah. liberalism. And the European Union is not tremendously loved by Europeans either of the left or right because they were power from on high imposed on everyone, like it or not. So how is yeah. the EU, of which Hungary is a member, fighting mm. back against this threat? So uh, on the specific question of Hungary's new legislation, which again, um, not only increases sentences against pedophiles, but also uh, you know, actually makes it, uh, bans the portrayal of homosexuality uh, to anyone under the age of 18, for instance, uh, which effectively gets rid of sex education as we understand sure. it in, in schools. Um, the EU basically said, look, you know, this, this violates our principles. We have principle of, of equal rights. Um, we will not allow... Uh, any uh, people in the EU to be treated as second-class citizens, and so we will we will oppose this um, this this legislation. Um, and uh, this is a this is an interesting kind of challenge. You know, the degree to which the EU can enforce. Uh, what some say are, you know, just uh, equal rights, and therefore part of the uh, have, and have been part of the EU identity since practically the beginning. Although the, the you know, the, the definition of what equal rights is has changed, um, versus the EU as imposing mm-hmm. an alien agenda on other countries. Now, you know, for for some countries like like or like Hungary and Orban, the conservatives don't like the idea of the EU imposing any kind of um, restrictions on Hungary. They they're they're sovereignists. Uh, this is a term that refers to to any political group that says, "Look, you know, we will not allow um, uh, a- any external force to dictate our laws. We determine everything that takes place within our bo- our sovereign borders." And that's actually a popular position around the world. It's the position that Xi Jinping takes in China. It's the position that Vladimir Putin takes in Russia. And frankly, it's it's the position that both Democrats and Republicans take yes. here in the United States. It's kind of a bipartisan consensus, although the Democrats tend to be a little bit more forgiving of, uh, say, international influences or or multilateralism as a as a um, as a method of of uh, approaching geopolitical questions. Um, so it's not as if Hungary is is outside the mainstream by asserting its sovereign control, but it is outside the European mainstream because that's a principle mm-hmm. of European integration. I mean, it, you are, um, you know, basically working together with your uh, fellow countries inside the European Union uh, to achieve kind of regional, comma, collective goals. And in order to do that, uh, they have basically given EU institutions a certain amount of authority over what takes place within the the national boundaries of countries. Now, that could go so far as to getting rid of your currency, and not every mm-hmm. EU country has done so, but the Eurozone countries have given up their currencies, and therefore they've given up the control their national banks had 
over um, issuing money as a as a method of controlling inflation or um, or or uh, stimulating the economy. So they've lost that uh, control. And there are other examples, obviously trade. Um, you know, the famously the UK complained about you know uh, the Brussels bureaucrats dictating right, right. the size of cucumbers and so forth. Um, so there are other examples of you know the nitty gritty. Uh, that the EU legislates on that basically trumps uh, national uh, legislation. So that's that's a concern that that Hungary has and a number of other countries have uh, and has usually grouped under the general category of Euroscepticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes Euroscepticism is just, you know, the province of, of some minority parties in a parliament, and sometimes it rises to the governing ideology as it has in Hungary. Well, I can just imagine, as you said, the, the phrase impo- imposing an alien agenda. Nationalism is the opposite of that. It's, it's, it fights hard against perceiving that some alien agenda is being imposed. And, you know, when it comes to wearing masks, to getting vaccinated, you know, and, and you know, having any kind of uh, sane gun laws, that's, to some people, imposing an alien agenda. And that's sort of, you know, is, is like the warm-up act <laughs> for, uh, uh, you know, making your opponent the absolute uh, evil, you know, yeah. that uh, that you have to fight against. I, I got to ask, too, what do you, Democrats, sex, how do you think the revelations of sexual harassment revealed in the report of the investigation into New York Governor Andrew Cuomo may play out with this crowd and with this discussion? Well, I think it, you know, for the for the radical right, of course, it's it's yet more proof that the Democrats have no morals. Um, and and even though you know, I mean, Cuomo's not uh, being accused of pedophilia, but it's still uh, an example of of how Democrats are not committed to family values uh, that they, uh, in their personal conduct, uh, should not be trusted because if they can't be trusted around. You know, other people in, in, in interpersonal relations. How can we trust them with our money and our governance, et cetera? Um, and in this case, well, I mean, Andrew Cuomo is a jerk, you know, and he should resign. Um, and regardless of what party he belongs to, he he was guilty of, con- or at least he's been accused of conduct. He hasn't been obviously tried in a court, but he's been accused of conduct, which is simply unbecoming of a politician. But it's also, unfortunately, rather prevalent among men of his generation and politicians of his generation. Um, and that includes plenty of Republicans. Um, so for me, the, the question is, you know, will this spell, not just with Cuomo, but with other politicians of his ilk, will this spell a real kind of generational shift mm. in the same way that, you know, we saw the end of, you know, kind of uh, the, the kind of um, boss tweed like policies with uh, you know the, the the fall of Tammany Hall or the fall of Richard Daly's you know, party machine in Chicago. I mean that was in some ways a, a watershed moment, a generational moment in terms of how politics are conducted in this country. I think the spread of Me Too and uh, the mm-hmm. kind of uncovering of sexual harassment will be a similar kind of inflection point in terms of a generational shift. It's not going to happen today, tomorrow next week, next year. But I think uh, when people look back at this period of time, I hope they will see it 
as as a real change in how politicians uh, behave uh, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, indeed. And I can see it in uh, the younger generation, which I'm most enthused about as an old guy. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is John Pfeffer, return guest. Uh, Always interesting to talk to John Pfeffer. Today's topic is the global right wing's bizarre obsession with pedophilia. Um, And Latin America is generally quite socially conservative. How's the uh, LGBT community being treated there relative to the need for protection of children. How is it playing there? I'm I, concerned. Yeah. Well, you know, there there are obviously two major religious trends in Latin America. There's there's Catholicism, which has been, oh, you know, yeah. the, the primary force for hundreds of years. Yes. Um, and then there's a rising Pentecostal um, force, which in, in some places has become, you know, particularly powerful politically, as in Brazil, for instance. Um, and in both cases, we have, you know, a, uh, an, a, a pedophilia intersects with, with these religious um, phenomena. First of all, because Catholic Church in Latin America, as with, you know, Catholic churches pretty much anywhere in the world, has had to deal with its own pedophilia scandal and child molestation, especially in Mexico. Just incredible stories of, of what took place there. Um, and for the Pentecostals, I mean, part of it is, you know, they're, um, they can use this, the scandals within the Catholic Church, as a way of boosting their own, you know, membership and, sure. and numbers throughout the, throughout the continent. But we also have seen kind of QAnon-like conspiracy theories emerging, um, especially uh, you know, there's this kind of uh, theory that has proven popular in Latin America to a certain extent in the United States that um, there's a group of pedophiles who are organizing um, within the LGBT community using the language of rights, of civil rights, uh, to advance their own claims that they should have rights as pedophiles. And of course, this such an organization does not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, of course, have had you know, some very, very marginal uh, groups in the past, uh, NAMBLA, for instance, here in, in the United States, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, which is really not not really much of a group at all. It might have been, you know, a couple of individuals with particular um, you know, approach to things. Uh, but there's nothing like that today, and there's certainly nothing like this um, uh, group organizing within the LGBT uh Community. So, this is this is you know uh, again part of a kind of hysteria that is really not about pedophilia. It's really about um, a fear that homosexuality is undermining the social cohesion of the families uh, and a family-based society. No question about that. That uh, hysteria, and I do find it interesting that. The vast majority of pedophiles are not gay. They're straight. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost yeah. all of them are straight. And we mentioned Hungary. There's also, you, you cite Bulgaria. What, what's mm-hmm. happening on this front in, in that Balkan country? There's something they conjured up about a threat from rich Norwegians. What's the real yes. story? And how does that, there's sort of an example of how this gets used and, and transmogrified. Yeah. So uh, the very conservative forces in Bulgaria, similar to, you know, the, the 
ones in Hungary, were organizing around um, sex education questions, uh, feminism, and LGBT issues, and basically persuaded the Bulgarian government to do two things. One, to kind of um, alter its sex education curriculum so that it was more, well, homophobic or <laughs> more family-oriented, depending on how you want to define it, but also to uh, withdraw or not to ratify the Istanbul Convention, which was um, on the rights of, of children and, to a certain extent, women. Um, and uh, because they argued it, uh, it encouraged homosexuality. Um, in order to get this passed, they used a variety of different arguments, um, and one of which was uh, the so-called Norwegian model, uh, which they said that um, Norway was uh, basically paying the Bulgarian government to separate children from their families. Um, you know, I mean, that, that does happen, obviously. The state does intervene in certain cases. Uh, for the protection of children uh, if there's yes. abuse taking place. Sure. Um, but in this case, they argued that Norway's paying the Bulgarian government to do this so that uh, Norway could then step in and adopt the children and then give them to uh, gay couples uh, in Norway. And they, they made the same argument about Denmark as well. So it's the two countries, Denmark and Norway, doing this. Now, of course, there's uh, no evidence uh, that this happened, but it, it was very persuasive for people in Bulgaria. And I would argue it was persuasive. I mean, I, I don't think that kind of argument would work here in the United States. I mean, people don't have that kind of uh, view of Norwegians. Hmm. I, mean, I don't think much about Norwegians at all, to be right. honest. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but for Bulgaria, it had a particular um, meaning because, you know, Bulgaria is uh, either the poorest or the second poorest country mm. in the EU. Uh, and it has witnessed you know, an extraordinary kind of um, intervention uh, by outsiders uh -huh. to, um, to either buy properties or, you know, to, to set up businesses, you know, because it, it's cheap and right. it's, it's a, it, there's great growth possibilities there, even if the country's population is shrinking. Um, but there's anxiety over uh, what foreigners are doing in and around Bulgaria. Sure. So the notion that Norway, which is frankly, one of the richest countries in EU, uh, is, is engaged in this preposterous scheme is really just a stand-in for people's anger over rich Europe taking advantage of poor Europe. And so rich Europe are rich Norwegians, poor Europe are the poorest and most vulnerable children of Bulgaria. So you have that um, relationship, uh, which is a very real power imbalance represented in this absurd conspiracy theory. Mm. And, you know, tyranny depends on people believing lies. America's founders were very clear in their insistence that democracy, a Republican form of government, requires an educated citizenry. Nowadays, the far-right Republican Party uh, doesn't seem to value education. They, you know, they, they, they picture it, they paint it as a populist issue. We're just as good as them. You can't tell us, you, you know, outsiders can't tell us what values or whatever, you know, and, and people, it, it works. I wonder what kind of a threat to a Republican form of government are we talking about by them using this issue and creating this incredible fear that, that's not there? How, how much of a threat is that, do you think, to democracy? Yeah, no, I think it's a, a tremendous threat. I mean, uh, you know, this 
the, the, you brought up critical race theory before, and I think that's another great example of this fear of um, the subversion of the status quo narrative. In this, in this country, the narrative of the United States is being a, a, essentially a, a pure and sinless society and uh, one that the founding fathers established and which has you know, only gotten better since then. And uh, any educational module that threatens that idealistic understanding of the United States um, is, is politically problematic for, for this group of conservatives. So critical race theory, of course, and its understanding of kind of the structural racism in, in American society, or, you know, the, the notion that, um, you know, that, that marriage is not just between a man and a woman, or that, you know, gender is considerably more complex yes. than just male and female. Yes. All of that is, you know, um, challenges effectively the, the foundation of their thinking about, uh, about the structure of American society. And for those notions to be introduced to children, that's the worst possible uh -huh. thing. I mean, in some sense, that is a form of child molestation. I mean, they're not being molested sexually. They're being molested intellectually. And, uh, and so, you know, it's a form of pedophilia, if you will, that the Republicans are accusing people of, um, you know, really uh, playing with the minds of the most vulnerable in society. Um, unfortunately, uh, as I think you mentioned, you know, we, we used to have a certain consensus about you know, civic education, you know, it would be, you know, focused on, you know, how bills are, are, are right. written and passed and, you know, what voting is about. And, you know, uh, and so there was a certain kind of uh, agreement around that. And I remember, you know, back in the 80s, you know, uh, the book Cultural Literacy came out and, and E.D. Hirsch basically said, look, you know, um, in order to have a democracy, we all have to have a consensus about certain mm. things. And that consensus is built on a knowledge, uh, a common knowledge of a common curriculum. And so here's in this book what I think are the elements of, of, uh, of a common curriculum. And you know, there was criticism of that, you know, it's like, well, you left out a bunch of things and uh, that came from the left and the right was like, well, this is too namby-pamby liberal. So he didn't really, <laughs> it was a bestseller, but he did have a lot of critics from both left and right. But for me, it indicated the kind of breakdown. That was a moment of the breakdown of, of consensus around what civic education, what civics is all about, yeah. and what uh, the role education plays in democracy. Uh, since then, we've seen, obviously, much greater polarization. Whether we can even get back to the point of, of that moment in which there was a, a tenuous consensus over what, to be, what should be taught in schools, or that's you know, now out the window, and it's going to be simply you know, a battleground from here on out uh, between who's more powerful uh, on the school boards, uh, you know, in the state legislatures, in the education department, and whoever has the upper hand will determine, you know, what is being taught in the school system. And that, frankly, you know, this kind of war of all against all is a frightening prospect. Boy, it certainly is. Uh, nice to uh, end the show on a happy note. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, well, this is reality. And we, you know, being educated is extremely important, in my opinion. And uh, you write really interesting stuff quite regularly. If people want to read more of your stuff, go to Foreign Policy in Focus or Institute for Policy Studies, right? 
Sure, they can go to fpif.org uh, or ips-dc.org, or they can go to my website, johnfeffer.com. Thank you so much, and look forward to talking to you the next time. Thanks. Thank you. Really great opportunity. Yes.